Well, good morning, Chili Bible. How are we doing this morning? Seems a little loud. All right, well, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week in John chapter 1. We're going to be learning this morning about the ministry of John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus. Uh, the gospel writer has already told us that the Baptist was a ministry to Jesus, but he hasn't told us much about the actual content of John's ministry and his testimony. So today, we're going to get a close-up snapshot of the Baptist ministry uh, among the people of Israel and learn what he, uh, what he has to tell us about Jesus. And I think there are also, along the way, uh, from John the Baptist, some lessons for us about how we do ministry in our day, with our people. You know, he was a minister among the people of Israel, uh, and he had a ministry of uh, preparation and pointing to Jesus, and we, in the same way, have a very similar ministry to his of preparation and pointing people to Jesus. So, before we dive in, though, I want to just seek the Lord uh, with you and ask His Holy Spirit uh, for his empowerment to understand and obey God's word. So let's do pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit and that by the Spirit we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and be heard. And, and though we do not understand how it all works, Father, know that when we pray that your hand is moved on our behalf. Father, we do pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to understand and to obey your word to us. Father, we, we know that you're speaking to us when your word speaks. And so, Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would listen and be transformed by your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Well, this is what the Scripture says, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, verse 19 begins, this is the testimony of John. And again, the, the John mentioned here is John the Baptist. Well, who is he? Uh, from the other Gospels, we know that John the Baptist was a Levite, uh, that his father, Zechariah, was a priest. There's no mention in Scripture anywhere that John the Baptist ever fulfilled uh, a role as priest. But his father, Zechariah, would have been descended from the priestly line of Aaron uh, through the priest Zadok uh, in the, in the uh, Old Testament. They became the faithful line of priests. And uh, when he became a man, he started a revival movement among the Jews up in the north on the other side of the Jordan River uh, in what is now the country of Jordan. And it was near the town that in the Old Testament is called Bashan, uh, but by John's day is uh, known as Batanea which gets Hellenized or turned into Greek as Bethany. Okay, a very similar spelling, and it was been called Bethany. And John, the gospel writer here in, in, in this, uh, in verse 28, talks about Bethany across the Jordan. That's what he's talking about, because there are two towns called Bethany. One is just outside Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And the other is this place, Batanea, uh, Bashan, that was in Jordan, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, so the east side of the Jordan. Uh, and it's near the ancestral homeland of the Jewish tribes of Zebulun, Naphtali, Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad. And what John did as he was out there in this area was he would call his own people, call the Jewish people, to repentance and to demonstrate that repentance by being baptized. And you need to understand, this was, baptism was not a completely unknown thing in, in John's day. It was something that, that did commonly happen. But the people group that John was baptizing was very different from what people expected. In John's day, there were all kinds of Jewish groups that would baptize people. But the people that they would baptize would be Gentiles. And the idea was, you know, you're a Gentile, you're not part of the people of God, but when you, when you put your faith in the God of Israel, well, we need to have a marker and a way of identifying that you have changed from being a Gentile to being a Jew, and so in addition to being circumcised, uh, which, by the way, that's an entrance requirement um, that's fairly serious. If you're an adult man, you're committed to the battle on this. But then after that, they would have a, a baptism service that they would do. And what would happen is the proselyte would come, uh, come into the synagogue, and then he would dip himself into the water, and it symbolized as he came out a new life. Well, now here comes John. 
And he says, all you people of Israel, all you descendants of Abraham that believe you are the people of God, you need to repent and get baptized to symbolize that you need a new life. And they went, the heck you say? What? What? We're Jews. We're the children of Abraham. What do you mean? And, and this, this fellow, this John, is running around, by the way, dressed like the prophet Elijah. He's wearing a, a robe of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating bugs and honey in the desert. And people are like, this guy is so strange. And he is calling Jewish people to be baptized. What's wrong with him? Doesn't he understand we're already rightly related with God? We're the covenant people for crying out loud. What's the deal? And all kinds of people, though, are going out to John in the wilderness in this place and being baptized. And so there's a, a little contingent from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling elite in Jerusalem, that sends some guys off to investigate. It says they sent priests and Levites. And it says they were from among the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees are the group of people that was, they were the, the very serious, committed, religious believers in Yahweh who wanted to obey and keep the law perfectly. And they accepted the whole Old Testament as we, as we know it as being the Scripture. And so they start looking for who John could be. Because there's massive expectation as Jesus is about to come on the scene that the Messiah is about to arrive. In fact, if you read the prophet Daniel closely, you'll see that Daniel makes a prophecy about 490 years until the, prophet, until, uh, until the Messiah will arrive. That from this decree made by King Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. until the day that Messiah shows will be 490 years. Well, they're at year 487. And so everybody's looking. Everybody is looking for the Messiah and for these eschatological figures, these last days figures that they mention. And they come, they come to John and they ask him, first of all, they say, are you the Christ? The Christ. I don't know if you know this, but you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title. It means the it, it comes it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who is to come from God and deliver us all and to bring the new covenant and salvation to God's people. Are you that guy? And John says, No, not him. And so then they ask him if he is Elijah. You know, that's a natural question. Because here's a guy who is dressed like Elijah and living in the wilderness like Elijah. And the prophet Malachi predicted in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that God would send Elijah to his people before the day of the Lord comes. 
John says, no, not Elijah. Now later on, Jesus, who understood John's ministry better than John did, says, yes, he was Elijah. John the Baptist was Elijah that Malachi predicted. But John said no, because that's not how he saw himself. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? And by that they mean the one that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses prophesied that there would be a great prophet after him and who would arise and that they needed to listen to everything that prophet said. And the Jews associated the coming of that prophet with the coming of the Messiah. And so they ask him, are you the prophet? Are you the one that Moses said we should expect? And he says, again, no. And they're like, well, we've asked all of our questions. What are we going to say to the guys who sent us over here to find out who you are? Because John is doing something, again, you know, all the other baptisms that were known in John's day were something that was self-administered. You got yourself wet. But here is John, dressed like a prophet, saying things like a prophet, behaving like a prophet, and then he is claiming authority to do baptisms because John is actually baptizing people. He is not encouraging people to baptize themselves. He's baptizing them, which is an indication that he sees himself as someone with some kind of authority from God to do these things. And so their question is, well, look, where do you get off baptizing? Let me bring it into the vernacular. Where do you get off baptizing Jewish people and calling Jewish people to repent and get right with God if you're not any of the people we're expecting? Who are you? Who do you think you are, John? And he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, like Isaiah said. And he says, and I'm the one who's going to identify the one who is greater than me. He says, he is so great that I am not worthy to stoop down and undo the strap of his sandals. Now, you need to understand something. If you were a teacher, now those of you who are school teachers, you might want to lay this on your students, all right? Um, if you were a teacher, your students were expected to do everything for you that a slave would do. Your students were essentially like unto your slaves. But there was one thing that you didn't have to do if you were the student. And you did not have to touch your teacher's feet, and you did not have to undo their sandals. Why? Because that was too low, that was too humbling, that was too nasty. Because remember, this is the ancient world, okay? Uh, Y'all been to the state fair? Uh, one thing, if you like to go through the livestock barns, as we like to do, uh, we like to go in and see the big horses and the, the, all the sheep and goats and pigs and all this kind of thing. One thing I would not recommend um, as you're going through there, wearing flip-flops. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> or anything that's kind of just where your feet are just kind of open to the environment. Because why? There's a lots of animal byproduct around. Right? And in the ancient world, everybody, you know, if you, if you wanted to get anywhere, you had, um, you, you rode a horse, you rode a mule, a donkey, you maybe you rode in an ox cart. And there's no sanitation department coming along picking all that up. And you're wearing sandals. So guess what? It's all over you. And your feet are nasty. And so you've got to take your shoes off. You've got you to wash your feet before you go into somebody's house. So you're not carting that with you. And so that job of, of undoing people's sandals and washing their feet was reserved for the lowest ranking of your slaves. And John says, this guy who is coming after me I'm not even worthy to do that job, the job that nobody wants for him. He is magnifying the Messiah. He says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the one who is here preparing people for the coming of Messiah. I'm the one whose job it is to prepare people and get them ready for the Messiah so that when I point Him out, they will see Him and recognize Him and follow Him. He says, but I'm not worthy to be compared to Him. And so in other words, he's saying, he's saying look, it's not that I think that I am so great. It's not that you don't need to be worried about where my authority comes from. You need to be worried about the one who comes after me, whose authority and whose power and whose magnificence is so much greater than mine. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he goes on. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that He might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, when John sees Jesus, he says four important things about Him. He says, first of all, He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. And this is an incredibly rich term theologically. It has reference to all the Old Testament instructions about sacrifice. 
you know, when you're reading your through your Old Testament in a year, and you get to that place where Bible reading plans in a year go to die, also known as Leviticus, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> when you get there and you start reading about all these sacrifices, and you start reading about things like the guilt offering, and the sin offering, and the fellowship offering, and the burnt offering, and the Passover sacrifice, and the new moon sacrifice, and the Sabbath day sacrifice, and the sacrifice, and the sacrifice, and the sacrifice. That one of the commonalities that runs through all of these is that there is a lamb that is slain for sacrifice. And so when John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, there's a sense in which he is importing a lot of that imagery right into that statement. And he says, who takes away the sin of the world. The idea that this is the one who is the ultimate sacrifice. The one who's going to do what all the other sacrifices could never accomplish. But there's another sense that John probably also intends us to understand the Lamb of God. And it's, it's, it requires actually going outside of the Bible a little bit because in John's day, there were all of these groups that were around, Jewish groups that were talking about the coming of the Messiah and one of the titles that they gave to him was the Lamb of God. And the idea that he was going to rule and to reign and to conquer over every evil thing in the world. And by the way, you also see the Apostle John pick that imagery up in the book of Revelation. Because there you also see the Lamb of God. Amen? And it says that he is one who has been slain and brought to life again, but He is also, guess what? The one who is seated on the throne in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God. And so when John says, this is the Lamb of God, that's what he means. The one who takes away sin and the one who will reign. The one who will rule the one who is the Messiah. And John says, number two, this is the one I was talking about. Remember when I told you I wasn't worthy of the guy who was going to come after me to stoop down and untie his shoes? This is the one that I told you was coming. And he says, I did not recognize him. I didn't know him. What he means there is this. It's not that Jesus was totally unfamiliar to him. He and, he and Jesus were cousins. So he knew who Jesus was, but he didn't understand who Jesus was, if you understand what I'm saying. He did not recognize Him as Messiah. He says, I didn't know Him, but now I do. And he says, and he says I understand now that He is greater than me because He was before me. 
you know, the cultural assumption is, is that if you're older, you're more honored and more important, right? And we don't have that cultural assumption in our culture. You know, we kind of worship youth um, in our culture. You know, everybody wants to be like perpetually 25, you know. Um, wrinkle-free and skinny and healthy for the rest of our lives, right? Um, but that was, not the, that was not the culture of Jesus' day. Everybody wanted to be older and revered and honored. And even within a family, the person who was older was treated with more respect than the person who was younger. In my uh, late brother-in-law's family, he's, he's Chinese, and he was number six. And no one in the no one in the family is referred to by their name. They're referred to by their number. And so his nickname in the family was Old Number Six. That's what it translates to in English, which is very strange to me. But it was because the idea was, okay, well, oldest brother, the oldest brother, well, he ranks your number six. Sorry, <laughs> okay, you're not as important. You came later. You came later. And John is upending that cultural assumption. He says, you know that Jesus is my younger cousin. But actually, he was, he existed before me. How far before? Forever before. He became incarnate in Mary's womb, but He existed before that. He was before me. And John didn't know all that. And so God gave him a sign. He said, look, I will send My Holy Spirit down from heaven in the form of a dove, and when He alights on someone, you'll know that's the one. Isn't that gracious of God? You don't have to guess. You know, I pray a lot of times for God's will to be, to be uh, you know, revealed in my life. I actually pray this way. I say, God, I want your will and I want you to make it obvious. Make it obvious to me. So that I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of slow on the uptake sometimes and I really want to be obedient. So just make it obvious to me that this is what I'm supposed to do. And God makes it really obvious to John. I'm going to send a dove that you will see and he will alight and remain on a person. And it's, by the way, it's critical that word remain because what he's trying to show John is that this is the person with whom my Holy Spirit is always present. Because in the Old Testament, you see people that the Holy Spirit came and went. You ever read the story of Samson? And when Samson, when Samson even partially obeyed God, even partially, he never fully obeyed God, not even one time. But whenever he even partially obeyed God, the Spirit of God was with him. And he would win these great battles and victories for the nation of Israel and deliver them from the Philistines. But then there came a day where it says the, 
his strength had left him. Where did strength come from? It wasn't from working out at Gold's Gym. In fact, I think sometimes when we look at picture Bibles, you know, we have the wrong picture of Samson. You know, we, we, we like have this idea of like 1980s era, like Lou Ferrigno or Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, this guy's got like muscles where I don't even have muscles, right? Um, and, uh, you know, he's just, you can see his trapezius through his shirt and, you know, all this kind of thing, right? But I think actually the reason that people keep asking all through the story, where does his great strength come from, is that he was kind of just a little ordinary, shrimpy Jewish guy. And all of a sudden he would win these great battles. And it was like, where does his strength come from? Because he doesn't look like much, right? And, and I mean, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense, right? All of a sudden, you know, this little bitty curly-headed Jewish fellow is whooping all of us. I don't get it. And it was because the Spirit of God was with him. Same thing with King Saul. King Saul had the Spirit of God at a point in his life, but then the Scripture says the Spirit of God left him. David in, in Psalm 51 prays as he's confessing his sin to the, to the Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because in, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, not everybody had the Holy Spirit, and it could be taken from you for rebellion and sin. And so David is praying that that not be the case. Now in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, when the Spirit comes, He stays. And He can't ever be taken from you. So you don't have to pray that when you pray Psalm 51. You don't have to pray, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. He's not going anywhere. But he's wanting to show John, John, this is the one that my Holy Spirit is always present with. And so John sees the Spirit remain on Jesus. And related to that, God tells John, this one that you see, the Messiah, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's also important. Water baptism, what it symbolizes is the removal of sin and the beginning of a new life. That your old life is buried and your sin removed, washed away as it, as it were, and then you're raised to new life and to cleansing. Well, spirit baptism is the reality that water baptism just points to. It's the shadow, if you will. You ever do shadow puppets? You're a kid, you know, you make birds and, and whatever else, right? Um, well, you do shadow puppets, and then, but the reality is something different, right? The reality comes near, and the reality is, is, your, is, is something you can touch and hold on to that the shadow merely points to. Well, water baptism is the shadow. Spirit baptism is the reality. And, and John is magnifying Jesus again, and he's saying, I'm baptizing with just water. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign. But it's meant to point to the greater reality that the Spirit of God is coming. 
and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will give people the real cleansing and real new life that water baptism only symbolizes. And finally, John says about Jesus that he is the Son of God. The Son of God. Now again, this is a theologically rich term. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Davidic king is sometimes called the Son of God. In fact, as David is given the covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God establishes his covenant with David and he says, and he will be my son. And so you read as an example in uh, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 talks about the Davidic king as the son of God. Psalm 110, the same deal. The son of God, the Davidic king. And the idea is is that that this is the one who has the right to sit on David's throne. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. That's a Davidic title. But it's also, as we know, a much bigger reality than that. Isn't it? It's not just referring to the one who is the son of David, and therefore related to God by covenant as his adopted son. But also, that there's a, if I can drop a $50 philosophical word on you, also an ontological reality. That Jesus is actually, really, by his nature, from eternity past, the son of God. The second person of the triune being who has always existed in relationship with God, the Son of God. So John is pointing out that this person is not just the Davidic king, but literally, literally the Son of God. The eternal Son who existed as the living Word from eternity past. This is who Jesus is. And that's who John identifies Him as being. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one on whom the Spirit rests. The one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The one who is and forever will be the Son of God. Now, essentially, John's ministry was two things. To prepare people for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, and then to point them to Him as the Messiah. So that no one could miss Him when He arrived. Why might they miss Him? Because they didn't recognize Him for who He was. And we learn today that John didn't immediately recognize Him either. But his understanding grew over time as God showed him who the Messiah is. And in that, I think John is a lot like us. Maybe today as you're sitting here, you're still growing in your understanding of who Jesus is. But my prayer for you today is that you will understand who Jesus is. And that you will begin to understand all the things that John said about him 
are true, that he really is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, including your sin. That he is the eternal Son of God. That he is the one who was to come, and that recognizing him, you might begin to follow him as his disciple. But in addition to that, if you are a person who is already under, has an understanding of who Jesus is and you are his disciple, then you need to understand that your ministry in the world is essentially parallel to John's. Our job is to help people get ready for Jesus coming. Amen? Because Jesus came once as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and He will come again as the Lamb of God who establishes God's kingdom over the world and reigns and rules and eliminates evil. See, what the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand is that when they see these two aspects of the Messiah's ministry that they were going to happen at different times. They thought it was all at the same time, but it wasn't. It was, there was a suffering Messiah and a, uh, a sovereign Messiah, and they were the same person at different aspects of his ministry. And John's job was to point to the coming of the suffering Messiah, and our job is to point both back to him as well as forward to the sovereign Messiah who is returning. And to say to them, you need to get ready for his coming. How do we help them to do that? Well, we share with them who Jesus is, just like John did. And then... The scripture says, we make disciples by baptizing them. Where do we get that idea? And then teaching them to do everything that Jesus said. Baptizing and teaching them, making disciples of all people in every generation until Jesus comes again. Amen? That's our job. And in a sense... That our job then is just like John's. So now let me ask for those of us who are disciples of Jesus one very important question Who were your disciples? If your job and my job is to make disciples of every people group, in every generation all around the world, then who are yours? Who are yours? Who are the people that you are preparing for Jesus' coming by pointing to Him as the Messiah and making into Jesus' disciples? Who are yours? What are their names? Where are they? If you don't have any yet, can I suggest to you that now is the time to help people prepare for Jesus' coming and to point them to Him as Messiah and King and Lord and God? The idea is, is that we, as 
men and women who follow Jesus would spread out into the world like ripples on a pond. That we would point people to Jesus and make them His disciple. And that the people that we did that with would then do that for other people. Who would do that for other people. Who would do that for other people in every generation until Jesus comes. Somebody, in fact a whole chain of somebodies, were faithful to pass along discipleship from Jesus to the disciples, and then from the disciples to the next generation, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. About 30 generations, or actually, no, I'm sorry, about 60 generations all the way down to you and me. But we also need to be faithful to carry out our calling, just like John was faithful to his calling of making disciples who follow Jesus. We need to be faithful to do the same thing. Amen? Amen. If you don't know how to do that, come find me. I'm not hard to locate. And I will show you how to do this. How to sit down with people. How to teach them to... Walk with Jesus. If you don't know how to share the gospel, I will show you. One of our elders will show you. There's a whole bunch of people in our church who can show you how to share the gospel with somebody, how to make disciples. Our, our calling is to make disciples who follow Jesus, to prepare people for His coming and point them to Jesus. Just like Jesus did just like the apostles did, just like all the people between their day and ours did to get the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus down to you and me. Amen? So, let's make disciples. Let's be a church that makes disciples like John did. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do want to be faithful to you. You have been abundantly faithful to us. You will never leave us or forsake us. You never turn away from us. Your love for us is unchanging. Your forgiveness is overwhelming. Your grace is so sufficient that there is no one who can slip beneath it, even as your holiness is so high that none can attain it. Father, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit for the ministry you've called us to of making disciples in our generation. Help us, Father, to be faithful as John was, to cry out in the wilderness of our day and make straight the way of the Lord and to identify Jesus as who He is to those we know and to prepare them for His coming because He is coming back. Father, help us to be faithful. We need your help. We need your transformation if this is ever going to even come close. Father, we want that. We want to be obedient. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.